The text for our sermon this morning is 2 Samuel 24, and all the verses which we'll read will be up here on the overhead for you. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord. I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So God, Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in a great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. Seventy thousand men of Israel died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. This time we'll call the children to the front for the children's sermon. Well, today's Bible story is the last story in the Bible book of 2 Samuel. Now, the story has three parts. First, Israel and David sin by counting their army. Secondly, God disciplines them for this. And thirdly, God uses their sin and the discipline to teach his people about Jesus' sacrifice. Now, in the verses just before our Bible story today, there are some amazing stories about David's army. They are stories that teach us that God fights for his children. For example, we read about a man that fights off 800 men at once. Another guy goes down into a hole on a slippery, snowy day to fight a lion. Now, these are things that people just don't do, can't do. 
this happened not because these guys were superheroes, but because God was fighting for them. He gave them the victory. And that explains why it was wrong for David to want to number his army. Counting his army was David's way of saying, we're great and strong. We are powerful enough to save ourselves. And that attitude makes God very angry. Imagine your baseball team won because you, you, Tyler, you got a big hit at the end of the game. But then the next day at school, Aiden's running around telling everyone that he's who won the game. You'd be upset. But this is a billion times worse because anyone can get a hit and win a game, but only God can save a sinner. Israel had to be taught a lesson. So God offered David three choices. Either Israel could go seven years with no rain, or they could be beaten by their enemies for three months, or God would send a disease for three days that would kill many of them. Which would you choose? David chose the last one. Because he knew that God loves his people. So if he was disciplining them, it would be done from love. An enemy army would be very cruel because they didn't love Israel. And like our parents, when God disciplines us, he does it because he loves us. And that's why David chose the sickness from God's hand instead of the two other things. Well, the angel who carried the sickness came to Israel and many people got sick and died. And when the angel came to Jerusalem, God looked at his people and he felt sorry for them and he made the sickness stop. And the angel stopped right over a mountaintop where there was a flat field that belonged to a man named Arana. And in doing this, God was teaching his people about Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. How? David was told to offer a sacrifice there. Now, all the Bible's sacrifices were pictures of Jesus dying for the sins of his people. But that field was a very special place. A thousand years earlier, God sent Abraham to that exact same spot to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And that story of Abraham is a double picture because first, Abraham offering his son is like a picture of God giving us his son, Jesus, as a sacrifice. But also, secondly, God gave Abraham a sheep to offer instead of Isaac. And so it's a picture of God giving Jesus to die for our sins so that we don't have to die and go to hell. So now you see why God chose that spot for David's sacrifice. David offered a sacrifice to God for his and Israel's sins, right where Abraham had offered a sacrifice a thousand years earlier. God told David that this same spot would be where his son Solomon would build the temple, and in that temple, sacrifices were offered for sin every day for 400 years. So not only was David a picture of Jesus. Not only were the sacrifices a picture of Jesus, so was the temple, because the temple was God's house where he lived among his people. Many years later, you know that Jesus was born, and Jesus is God, and he lived among his people, and he still lives among us in our hearts. But the real lesson of our Bible story today is that we must never, never think that God saves us because of what we do. Because that robs Jesus of the credit for being our Savior. Jesus saves His people. Look, if you die for your sins, that just means you go to hell. 
but because Jesus died for your sins, you can go to heaven. So after we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it till we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Well, this is the last sermon in our series on First and Second Samuel. It's been edifying for me anyway. I've always enjoyed these books of the Bible, and I have to admit that I've not heard very many sermons on either book, let alone continuous exposition of both. The idea for this, here's a plug for the Sunday school, the idea for this came really from our Sunday school class. We're going through every book of the Bible. We started in Genesis, and we're now currently near the end of Isaiah. And when we went through 1 and 2 Samuel, I kept thinking and actually saying to the class, well, there's a lot of really good sermon material here. All those pastoral applications and the doctrines taught by these histories just kind of kept calling out to me. Anyway, you may know that First and Second Chronicles repeat many of the accounts from First and Second Kings or Samuel and First and Second Kings. But in Chronicles, there's often additional details or a different focus. For instance, in Chronicles, the accounts of Judah's good kings omit the bad things recorded in Kings. And that's because the emphasis of Chronicles is the grace of God. Chronicles was written after the 70-year Babylonian exile. And so its narratives are intended to show us God's faithfulness. Israel was unfaithful to the covenant, but God wasn't. In our text, we read that God was displeased with Israel, and so He moved David to number them. Now, we find this same account in 2 Chronicles 21. But there, we read that Satan moved David to number the people. Well, how do we reconcile these two accounts? Because at first glance, they'd appear to be as different as night and day. The answer is pretty straightforward. God is sovereign over all things, including evil. The devil himself can't move a muscle without God's leave. We learn this truth everywhere in Scripture thinking to our upcoming sermon series. Think, for instance, of the story of Job. The dupe of the story is Satan. The book demonstrates God's preservation of Job. Satan didn't just simply have the right to go around doing harm. He wasn't allowed to lift a finger against Job without explicit permission from God. And the story shows us how God is sovereign and how His sovereignty works grace for his people. Because Satan threw all this stuff at Job to get him to turn away from God, but God protected Job's faith through the whole ordeal. And you'll notice that throughout all the discussions that Job has with his friends, no one ever says, the devil is doing this without fail. They all acknowledge that what has befallen Job has all come from God's hand. Of course, this is an answer that some people are uncomfortable with. But that's because they don't grasp the nature of God's power. And they don't realize that any other answer spells disaster. Let me ask you a question. Could you pray with faith 
with assurance in God's ability to answer if the devil were a rogue agent totally outside the sphere of God's control. If there were as little as one rogue molecule in the universe, how could you ever be absolutely certain that your need wouldn't come into conflict with that rogue molecule? The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper is famous for saying, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If you put anything outside of God's absolute sovereignty, you might as well admit that you're an atheist. Now, many of the ancient religions believed in what is known as dualism. They held that there were two gods, if you will, who were equally matched in power. One was good, the other was evil. And I think you can see that this belief can produce nothing but despair. The Bible teaches us, however, that good and evil are not equally matched. As much evil as there undoubtedly is in the world, every single bit of it is directly under the control of God. And that truth is the only way that you can acknowledge the existence of evil and still have peace in this world. Our passage shows us that even at his most powerful, Satan is still a dog on a leash. So there's no contradiction here. God was displeased with Israel's pride. David was guilty of it too. And thus, God used Satan to put this temptation before them. Now that brings us to our outline. Number one, the sin, and that's from verses 1 to 9. The rod, that's verses 10 to 17. And the temple, that is 18 through 25. So first of all, the sin. If we read this account in isolation from the larger context, we won't understand it. I'd wager that most people who read this don't understand what David's sin was, why it was wrong for him to take a census, or why he was disciplined so severely. I'm going to argue the importance of context. This is one reason why we've preached through the books of Samuel in their entirety, because by doing so, we get to see the setting. These aren't disconnected, isolated events. Now, there are a couple of things to address with regard to the census. First of all, it wasn't a national census. It'd be very difficult to understand the sinfulness of David's decision if all he was doing was taking a census because God had ordered a census to be taken several times in the past. If the sin was simply numbering the population, we'd be between a rock and a hard place to understand why that's wrong. But verse 9 gives us a clue. We, what was numbered was the army. Verse 9 gives us the results of the census, and what we have is a number of soldiers. 800,000 from the northern tribes and 500,000 from Judah. The key, though, to understanding our text is to be found back in chapter 23. There, from verse 9 to the end of that chapter, we have accounts of almost unbelievable military feats. I'm going to read a selection of verses to, to give you the flavor. Adino killed 800 men at one time. Eliezer attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Shammah stationed himself in the middle of a field of lentils and defended it and killed the Philistines. Abishai lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them. 
Beniah went down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Now, that's just a few of the accounts. The chapter is full of them. Repeatedly, in First and Second Samuel, we read the words, The Lord gave Israel the victory that day. Go back to 1 Samuel 2, verse 9, we read, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. Remember what Jonathan said to his armor bearer? It is nothing with the Lord to save by many or by few. So that is how we're to understand these amazing acts. It doesn't matter how skilled one is, no one can defeat 800 men by himself. An unarmed but well-trained soldier could defeat an armed man with no training, but no one fights a well-trained soldier with just a walking stick. These stories are not examples of what, what you can do if you really believe in yourself. Read them yourself and you'll easily see that none of them are realistic expectations. David would never order someone to fight single-handedly fight 800 men. David wouldn't send a man to fight a fully armed soldier with just a walking stick. David wouldn't send a man down into a pit on a snowy day, mind you, to fight a lion. Of course, kids aren't ordered in the battle to fight giants with slingshots either, right? These stories aren't about the greatness of David and his men. The point is the battle belongs to the Lord. I mean, if you see someone single-handedly defeat 800 men and you can't attribute the victory to God alone, then I'm afraid there's no hope for you. Your mind is incurably darkened. Now that helps us see what the sin was and why God took such umbrage at it. This was the sin of salvation by works. It was the evil notion that salvation is earned by the works of our own hands. It was the sin of Arminianism. David and Israel looked at salvation from their enemies, and instead of acknowledging that it all came from the hand of God, they attributed it to themselves and their illustrious army. Isaiah 42.8, God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 43, 11, God says, I, even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Zechariah 4, 6, a verse very familiar, I suppose, to many of us, says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The sin of which David and Israel was guilty was that of taking to themselves the glory for their salvation. And of course, nobody does this without imagining that he has a role in his own salvation. David and Israel were guilty of an Arminian doctrine of salvation. And let me explain that reference. There was a theology professor at the University of Leiden named Jacob Hermanzoon. He's more commonly known by his Latinized name, James Arminius. He was appointed professor in 1603, and as part of his ordination, he signed off on the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism with a solemn oath that he held these confessions to be faithful expositions of Scripture and that he would teach and defend them. 
It became quickly obvious, however, that Arminius was a liar. He rejected many of the tenets of the Reformed faith, and he was actively undermining them at the university. Oh, he taught the, the assigned curriculum, but privately he was handing out pamphlets to his students, pamphlets he had written, which taught the doctrines of the 4th century heretic Pelagius. And the heart of Arminius' error was that of salvation by works. Now, of course, he wasn't so stupid as to stand before centuries of church history and say, man earns his salvation by his works without God's grace. Instead, he adopted the serpentine tactics of Rome and claimed that salvation was by grace and works. He said that God, in his grace, allowed men to earn their salvation by works. And that's as blatant a case of calling darkness light as ever there was. In his writings, he claims that men can frustrate God's plans, that God is hamstrung, unable to do what he wants because sinful men thwart him. Now, of course, such deceit could not fail to cause a ruckus. And the controversy that erupted at the university came to a head in the famed Synod of Dortrecht, which was really a heresy trial that was held 1618 1619. The synod defrocked the followers of Arminius, expelled them from the pulpits of Reformed churches across Europe, and condemned their doctrines as damnable heresy. The synod produced a document known as the Canons of Dortrecht, which answered the five objections of the Arminians. And that's why so many people equate Reformed theology with the so-called five points, known by the acronym TULIP. It is no exaggeration to say that the doctrine of predestination is the cornerstone of the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith accurately expounds the Bible's teaching, which says that all men are lost in sin, completely unable and unwilling to do anything tending to their own salvation. But God, in His infinite mercy, has predestined certain men to salvation from eternity past. All men are hopelessly lost in sin, completely unable and unwilling to seek God. Those who do come to the faith in Christ do so because God chose them in Christ. He grants them the faith whereby they believe savingly. God's Spirit sovereignly regenerates them. No one is ever saved except God sovereignly regenerate him. Only God, and God only regenerates those whom He has unconditionally elected in Christ. So salvation is never of man's works. Scripture says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The glory always belongs to God, and His glory He will not share with another. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 115, verse 1 captures it perfectly. Not unto us, Lord, not unto us. But to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. And that word mercy is the Hebrew word chesed, which Scripture uniformly uses when speaking of God's eternal covenant love for His elect church. Israel and David's sin, therefore, was a form of Arminianism. They were trusting in the strength of their own arm. Their confidence had moved from God, the rock of their salvation, to their own military prowess. When they looked at their, their army, they arrogated to themselves the glory which was due to God alone. Israel wasn't triumphant because her army was a bunch of supermen. 
Adino defeated 800 men because God gave the victory. They had forgotten God's promise in Leviticus 26.8. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. They had forgotten how the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he killed a hundred Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. They had forgotten Joshua 23.10. One of you shall put a thousand to flight because the Lord your God fights for you. Israel and David's sin was that they were attributing their salvation to their own will and power. And this is an insult that God will not brook. God declares, yea, threatens. My glory I will not give to another. He alone is the only Savior. It is taking God's name in vain to call Him Savior while trying to split the credit for salvation. We don't go Dutch with Jesus paying for our sins. And so in this light, we see just how egregious of a sin this census was. This was no innocent census. It was a way to stand in front of the mirror and admire your body. This is Narcissus looking at his reflection in the pond and falling in love. Samuel Stanhope Smith, in a sermon on the golden calf, writes, There is in the human heart a strange perversity and disposition to forget God our Maker which if it were not so common, not to say universal, would be almost incredible. The most awful displays of the majesty and justice of God when they are past speedily cease to leave behind them any traces of those deep impressions which once appeared as if they could never be effaced. You'd think that if you'd seen the Red Sea open giving you a dry path through, if you'd seen Pharaoh's hosts drown, or if you'd seen Mount Sinai burn and tremble, that you could never, ever lose the deep sense of God's awesome majesty. You'd think you'd never forget His goodness. But we find Israel barely out of Egypt, indeed at the base of Mount Sinai, breaking every one of the Ten Commandments while God is writing them on the tables of stone. How quickly does Israel go from exalting in the Lord because he gave them the victory over their enemies in such miraculous ways as Adino killing 800 men by himself to counting their troops to see how great they are. It's like a 95-pound weakling looking in the funhouse mirror and seeing a giant muscle-bound hulk and thinking that's what he really is. In essence, they were saying, Yeah, we have a small army compared to the great empires of the world, but we're stronger than any of them. We save ourselves despite the odds. Our own might and our own arm hath gotten us the victory. Secondly, the rod. God moves quickly here. David's conscience strikes him the moment Joab returns with the numbers. And actually, it wasn't even an accurate numbering. Joab found the command so odious that he didn't do it properly. He left whole regions out of the number. God moves quickly. First, he convicts David, convicts his conscience, and David understands that by his sin, he's robbing God of the honor of being the Savior. And then God follows up this wounded conscience with a formal accusation by the prophet Gad and then by the rod of correction. David is offered three choices, seven years of famine, three months of defeat by enemy armies, or three days of the pestilence. Of course, Israel had been greatly distressed by the three-year famine because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Seven years would have been unthinkable. But that second choice, that's the kicker. That's where the rubber meets the road. 
The census was prompted by pride in their military prowess. So God is essentially asking David if he'd like to put his military skills to the test. You want to see if Adino can fight 800 men without me? You want to go into battle on your own strength? David understands what's at stake. His army has never lost a battle, but that's because they've been fighting the Lord's battles. How about fighting your own battles? David knows that they're outgunned by every serious army on earth. They've never won because of their own skill or greatness. Generally speaking, when the Lord disciplines us, He doesn't ask us to choose from different options of discipline to receive. I'm comfortable saying that there is no other such case, not the Bible nor anywhere else. God won't tolerate men resting His crown for their pointy heads. Discipline must be meted out. God will always defend His armor, His honor, even from His own children. We must always remember our place. David and Israel had to relearn the lesson of the Reformation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What do you have that you have not received? It has been gifted to you to believe in Christ. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Without me, you can do nothing. Well, finally, David chooses to accept the three-day pestilence. And his rationale is very telling. He says, let me fall into the hand of God. For the Lord is merciful, but let me not fall into the hands of men. Now, I'm convinced that the Lord offered David this choice of chastening because David is a foreshadowing of Christ. The significance is really twofold because first, David would place himself in God's hands for God is a God of covenant love, chesed. Secondly, as a foreshadowing of Christ, David would take the burden of the guilt onto his own shoulders. So the angel of the Lord stretches forth his hand against the land and 70,000 people die. Now that death hole is high, but if David had chosen famine or defeat by his enemies, the death hole would have been way higher. There's no doubt about that. Plus, when the angel of the Lord sees Jerusalem, he has pity on his people and stops the destruction. No Philistine would have done that. Now, Gad tells David to build an altar right under the place where the angel of the Lord is above the city. And that place belongs to a man named Arana Jebusite. And that brings us to our third point, the temple. David immediately buys the land from Arana. He also buys oxen and wood so that he can build an altar and sacrifice there to the Lord. By the mouth of Gad, the Lord commands David to build an altar on this very spot. God has chosen this spot to be the location of a sacrifice for the sin of his people, the sin of leaning on their own work for salvation, for trusting in their own strength. And David here pleads with God in an amazingly Christ-like manner when he asks God to place all the guilt for the sin upon himself. He offers himself. He offers to bear the guilt of the whole people. Let me bear the blame. And in this amazing act, he truly foreshadows his greater son. For this is exactly what Jesus did. Only Jesus did it for real. He did take upon himself the guilt of all his people's sin. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This particular spot had great historical significance. Again, Chronicles gives us the enlightening information. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. 
Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Orn and the Jebusite. So we get an important historical piece of information here. We learn that the location of Arana's threshing floor was a historically significant place. A thousand years earlier, God sent Abraham to this very mountaintop to offer his son Isaac. As they're climbing the mountain, Isaac asks, Dad, we've got wood and fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham prophetically replies, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And these highly significant words are affirming that it is God who provides atonement. And more importantly, that God himself is the atonement. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. On this very spot where the glorious gospel doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement was demonstrated, when God provided a substitute for Isaac, where a loving father was willing to offer his only begotten son, on that very spot, God sent David to build an altar for sacrifice. And more importantly, on this very spot, Solomon would build the temple where sacrifice for sin would be offered every day for 400 years. The place where the gospel was acted out before the eyes of Abraham, where it was acted out before David and then acted out before the eyes of Israel for 146,000 consecutive days. I cannot adequately emphasize the importance and significance of this location. David and Israel were like reliving the sacrifice of Isaac. Rather than destroy all Israel, rather than reduce Jerusalem to rubble, God provided himself a lamb for sacrifice. Right there on top of Mount Moriah, where God had provided himself a lamb for sacrifice a thousand years earlier, God had again provided himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And not only that, he had provided a place for the gospel message of penal substitutionary atonement to be preached from Solomon's temple hundreds of thousands of times. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Let us pray.